It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Culture Lab. I'm Christy Taylor. This is the show all about how science plays out in our cultural creations. Sometimes we talk about the science behind popular TV and movies. Other times we talk to artists, authors, musicians about the research that influenced their works. Simon Reeve is a journalist and filmmaker who is known for traveling the globe. And in his first episode of the new series Wilderness, which premiered on the BBC last month, he's bringing his viewers to some of the furthest reaches of the planet. The goal, he says, is to remind us that Earth is still wild, even as so many of us live our lives in concrete and steel surroundings. Episode one of the series takes Reeve, and the rest of us, to the tropical forests of the Congo Basin. There, on top of natural splendor, we meet the indigenous Baku people and follow the difficult work of a wildlife criminal investigator. TV columnist Bethan Ackerley interviewed him recently about the new series and what his far-off travels can teach the rest of us about both appreciating and protecting the planet we live on. So, Simon, hi. Hello. Hi. Could you tell us a little bit about the series? Absolutely. So hopefully it delivers what it says on the tin. Wilderness. We went to four astonishing wilderness areas of the planet, areas where the impact of humanity was low, not non-existent because there is nowhere that is untouched by us as a species. Obviously, there's plastic particles at the bottom of the ocean and the top of the highest mountains. But we went to areas where human impact was low, where nature is still largely in charge. So we went to the Congo rainforest, we went to Patagonia, to the high Andes, to somewhere called the South Patagonian ice field, went to the Coral Triangle, which is an area of incredible area of ocean and sea around mainly the Philippines and Indonesia. And we went to the Kalahari in Southern Africa. And it was a series of pretty incredible expeditions, I would claim, and certain to be part of. So this is um, a slight departure from some of your previous series. Why was now the time to uh, focus on Earth's wildernesses? Yeah, I think it is a bit of a departure. So projects I've done in the past have been slightly less about places like this, I suppose. They've been, we've been focused more on areas where there are, or we think there are more humans living. I've been focused a bit more, I suppose, on political aspects, social aspects of places I've gone to. And now this is more starting from the standpoint of we are going to some of the last great wilderness areas. And I think why now is because I was starting to feel, and I think many of us are starting to worry, that the planet has been utterly ruined 
by us as a species, as a creature. And definitely we have transformed planet Earth and destroyed much of it, but there are still incredible wilderness areas out there that I think we need to know about, we need to learn about, we need to understand, we need to protect, and we need to fight for as well if we're going to have any hope of combating climate change and protecting biodiversity. So that was now, it was partly a reminder that it's a gorgeous planet out there. And I think these are also these areas that we need to give a damn about. Um, you touched on it for a moment there about um, exploring areas where people have been present. In this series, you interact with indigenous communities who have been sort of sustainably managing the lands and the, the remote areas that you visit. Yeah. Um, what did you learn from them? Goodness, yeah, so much. How to sum it up? I think one of the one way is one of my guides, Adams Kasinga in the Congo, said to me at one point. He says, he said that the community we were with, who was the who were the backer in a remote area of the Congo basin, he said they take what they need from Mother Nature, not what they want. So their footprint is so much smaller than ours, but their relationship with Mother Nature around them is very different. They don't look to dominate, they don't look to destroy, they look to live in a much more sustainable, holistic way that can last for generation after generation. Yet, as you said, yes, these are indigenous people who have lived in these remote places for hundreds, for thousands of years. That can only happen if you live sustainably with your environment, but also live sustainably with each other as well. So I think I learned a little bit more about how to leave a lighter footprint, how to respect nature around you. I think I learned more also not just how indigenous people have lived in wild places, but they have shaped them as well. I mean, we saw it ourselves when we were with some of the Baka in the Congo and we were a long way from their camp. They wanted some food. They had dug up some wild yams and then they planted very carefully the stems back in the ground afterwards so they could know that there would be food there for them to eat in the future. But we know that indigenous people around the planet have practiced a form of gardening essentially over the centuries. We know there are concentrations of fruit trees in the Amazon, for example, that can only be explained by people planting them. Humans have always lived in and shaped these areas and we didn't want to film wilderness areas without not respecting and reflecting the fact that people are there and they're not just existing there, but they've protected those places and cared for them. And I think the the other side of that coin is um, Mm. an increasing number of people are living in very highly urban areas, as you touch on in the series. Yeah. And I think that can lead to sort of a fear of nature. How do you think we could encourage people to to interact with nature, but to do so in a way that is, as you say, respectful and, and doesn't you know, pollute the area, say, doesn't, doesn't end up leaving the area worse off from, from having had that human interaction? How do we do that? I mean, that's a big a, question. <laughs> yeah, it's a big, it is a big question. I think a bit of, it's almost like most, most, solutions involve a form of carrot and stick, don't they? Uh, And I use the word stick very, very lightly. (laughs) I think we should be nudging and encouraging people to get out into the natural world in whatever form, garden, park, highlands, peak district, national park, wherever it is, and experiencing the natural world for their physical, emotional health. So definitely we need to encourage that and recognise, I personally think, 
the fundamental value of being in nature, wherever it is, whether it's just around the corner or whether it's quite a bit further away. So nudging, definitely, at the very least. Then the carrot is we make that possible. We make it viable and possible for people to get into those places. And that's through how we provide public transport and access to even communities that haven't necessarily thought that they belong in the countryside, for example. I remember when I was growing up in the sort of grey city area that we're talking about, I was very disconnected from the wilderness, from the wild. For me, you know, Acton Park was the wilderness, but still that was not far from me. That was, that was viable. We need to make wilder areas accessible to people as well. But there's a balance there. We don't want escalate travelators, do we, running through national parks. We don't want thousands of buses passing through there. So sustainably, responsibly, people need to respect that it's a privilege, but we definitely need to encourage it because it's critical for all of us that we have that opportunity. And what kind of role do travelogues like yours, or, or rather travel programmes like yours, play in that? Because I imagine you don't want it to be too too glossy, too, too mm. glorified, but you, you do want people to really understand how beautiful these places are. How do, how do you balance that when making your series? Carefully, I would say, but starting from the point of bias in that <laughs> I think telly's a good thing. So perhaps arrogantly, I think we've got a role to play in making people more aware of what is out there in the world. I think it's important people care about that. I totally respect somebody who disagrees with that or thinks I'm the wrong person to be doing it. I often wonder myself, but I think there is a massive value in us learning more about the planet we live on in whatever form. But yes, you've totally got to balance how much you glossify a place with providing adequate context and showing more of a reality as well. I mean, I slightly potential very pretentiously call it light and shade really in the programs we put both into the programs i make and sometimes it can feel a bit jarring in some ways but it's the reality of life out there in whatever form there is poverty next to incredible wealth there is deforestation next to biodiversity and i think showing that exists gives people an understanding of the world they're on and it gives them a bit of a sense of the context and it helps them to identify what issues need challenging and what areas need protecting. You mentioned that in terms of people getting out into nature, experiencing yeah. that, that sense of awe that sometimes comes with nature. Is that increasingly hard for you to find at home now from, from all of your travels? Is it, is it quite difficult for you to find that every day or where you live or is it still quite fresh in the mind? It's still quite fresh in the mind because to be honest, to be honest, I'm a bit like a goldfish going around the bowl. <laughs> I just feel like I it might be a, a scientific myth, but I feel like I forget as soon as I've got to the other side of the bowl, what, what's over here? I don't <laughs> sure. remember this. So experiences feel different to me. I'm not jaded, but definitely, you know, I've, I've been very, very fortunate. I've been very lucky to use that word. I have been on a lot of journeys and those have to inform me. They have to give me benchmarks for other things I see in the UK. So somewhere we see here, which everyone might go, oh, this is an amazing landscape. Oh, look at this this glorious wilderness. And I look at it and I go, well, it's got a few trees missing here, hasn't it? This is not really very wild. This has been tamed and shaped industrially. So it gives me knowledge and sometimes that can 
it can spoil my experience of a situation, but I would much rather it that way. I'm glad I know what I do and I'm glad to have the context, but certainly, yes, it gives me experiences abroad, which mean I can go, hmm, this is not really classed as a mountain, even though we <laughs> Brits might claim it is. Sure. So I imagine when people view the series, they will be quite keen to to help preserve these these wildernesses and, and some wild spaces perhaps closer to home. What gives you hope for wildernesses in the UK, sort of the remaining wild areas that we have? Is there anything that viewers can do after watching your programme to help preserve those spaces? So much, of course. You can be affected and respond to that. You can be upset and respond to that. You can be angry and respond to that. Anger is a motivator. And I think perhaps we don't have enough of that now. We are losing wild places and wild spaces and we need to agitate and be upset about that and perhaps angry as well. And that can lead to people taking action, writing, voting, campaigning, whatever it takes. You want your kids, surely, and your grandchildren to live on an interesting planet, on an interesting island off the northwest coast of Europe. So let's try and improve the situation we've got, not make it not make it worse. So of the uh, four wildernesses that you ended yeah. up uh, visiting for the series, was there one in particular that you felt particularly... Uh, attached to? I couldn't put a piece of paper between them for the effect they'll have on me in terms of my life. I mean, I remember all of them. They were, honest to God, each of them was amazing. But if you twist my arm, (laughs) I think the mountains of Patagonia, I know that they had a real impact on me. I suppose the mountains, mountains generally. I'm a mountain person. I was born, I was born (laughs) in the wrong place, really. I love my mountains. And there was definitely a moment we were trekking up to somewhere called the South Patagonian Ice Field, which is a critical mass of frozen water stored up there high in the Andes. It helps regulate the temperature as every large element of our ecosystem does, the wider climate and temperature of South America and the tropics. And we were trekking up to that. And we were up in the high in the mountains, camping out there before we began our final ascent up to the ice sheet. And uh, I was up before, we were all up before dawn and I need to go to the loo. So I went away from where everyone else was in their little tents and it was dark. The wind was howling in a way that you've never experienced unless you've been on the surface of Mars or you've clung to the side of a cliff in a storm. I mean, it was powerful and intense, but the moon was out and the mountain range, I came around a little rock corner and the mountain range of the Andes was just there in front of me in the moonlight it was a staggering moment in experience and i'm standing there holding my little roll of biodegradable toilet paper (laughs) and taking it all in i won't forget it hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap we're cutting the price of mint unlimited from 30 dollars a month to just 15 dollars a month give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch 45 dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees promote for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com ready to pop the question the jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Was there anything that you learned while making the series that was particularly shocking or alternatively gave you hope for the future of preserving these spaces? One thing that I found surprising and, yeah, and, very, and shocking was in the Congo where I kept meeting people and we see a couple of the examples in the program where people talked about how they'd been involved in poaching so they could earn enough money to go to college or school. And, you know, I've met people before, of course, around the world who are poaching to provide for their families who are desperate there on the poverty line. But these, the people we were meeting, they had a thirst for knowledge. They had no opportunity and they were creating it themselves. But by, by poaching, one of our guides, he'd started out as an elephant poacher, for goodness sake. He'd gone to university, he'd learnt more about the value of the wildlife around him, and he'd become a very passionate, committed Congolese conservationist. That was amazing to learn about and understand, but I think it should leave anyone who watches, I hope, thinking, my goodness, I've been very lucky growing up where I have to have an education system on tap for me that means I don't have to go and hunt precious precarious wildlife to to get it we there are people out there on this planet who don't have our luck and opportunities but given a thimble of it they would they would have such a different life so I never forget that and I found that I found that really upsetting and shocking and a reminder to me of my own good fortune in terms of what made me feel very positive was meeting local conservationists in these wild areas who are some of the most passionate, committed, brave protectors of wildlife and ecosystems that I've met anywhere in the world. And whereas I think in the past, we might have struggled to find local conservationists and we would have been we would have found that we've got European conservationists who are working there. It's much easier now to find locals who have taken that on themselves. They totally believe in it and they've got real skin in the game. Mm. So they are, they're risking their lives in some situations to protect landscapes, ecosystems and wildlife. And they inspired me, their bravery and their passion. Well. I really enjoyed watching the first episode of the series. Thank you very, very I much. I look forward to the rest. But are there any other wildernesses you'd like to visit soon? For, perhaps God. for another series? I'd like, yeah, twist people's arms, please, if you can. <laughs> yeah, I mean, let's see what people think of this. There are others out there, other wild areas. I totally believe that we need to know about them. We need to understand them so we can know what to protect. And yes, of course, we've got others that we could be talking about. And some of them aren't as far from us as we might think. I went on a little family holiday year before last, not that long, fresh in the memory. We went on a train to Romania. We climbed up high into the Carpathian Mountains to a very wild part of Europe. And we saw bears and bear cubs every day from a couple of remote hides. That's an extraordinary thing to do. And it is a bit of a reminder. It does still exist out there. It's definitely not as wild as our ancestors would have known, but it's probably a lot wilder if we're not careful than our descendants will know. So 
we need to know about these areas and protect them. So in light of all of this, do you consider yourself, in terms of climate, in terms of biodiversity, do you consider yourself an optimist? That's a very tricky question because by nature I'm a pessimist. I'm a sort of glass half empty cynic and I've found that's done me good because it means I'm never disappointed when things go wrong. I've got a lot of faith in us as individuals. Collectively, I think we're quite hopeless at organising our society so we can take long-term decisions to envisage a better future and beat a path to a more sustainable option. So I'm not massively hopeful when we're talking about all of us and our government structures, but I believe in individuals and I know that sometimes it can just take one amazing, inspiring leader to make all the difference. So hopefully they will appear. So you have had a lot of memorable kind of animal encounters over the course of all your series, but uh, also within this one. Was there one in particular that was your favourite? I think meeting bonobos in the depths of the Congo. The rest of my life, that is going to be a standout, standout moment. Being in the same space as them, our, our closest living relatives in many a way, and seeing how they live and engage with each other was beautiful. And it was awe-inspiring, but it was also inspiring because I think there's this big question, are we, are we like chimps? Is that what we are? Are we like more aggressive creatures, primates like that? Or are we perhaps a little bit more like bonobos who are much less willing to use violence as part of their lives, much less likely to resort to cannibalism? And anyone who follows veneer theory knows that you know, there is this idea that beneath our, scratch our, the surface of our skin and there's a violent ape lurking within. Well, maybe not. Maybe bonobos who are not directly related to, but we share a common ancestor, maybe they're an alternative version of us who are more loving, more, less violent. They use sex to resolve conflicts and women are in charge generally. So maybe, maybe they offer an alternative option for us as being an outlook on who we are as creatures as well. Certainly sounds more positive. <laughs> so what ideally would you like viewers to take away from the series? Oh, goodness. I'd just like them, to, I'd like them to be interested. I'd like it to spark a little bit more awareness about wild areas of the planet out there. If it was just one thing, I would love them just now from watching the programmes to know that the Congo in particular really, really matters to all of us. Uh, we need these wild areas, but we need trees as much as anything. We need the billions of trees that are in the Congo Basin. We don't hear remotely enough about the Congo, about that whole area at the heart of Africa. And hopefully just a tiny bit more information will come through from the programmes. But of course, the South Patagonia ice field, the wonders of the Kalahari, and perhaps the most important patch of sea in the world, the Coral Triangle, we all need to know about and care about as well. So with travel programmes like yours, there's, there's sometimes a concern that increased interest in these yeah. areas could lead to sort of over-interest with people mobbing particularly beautiful spaces. What would you say to people who think that we shouldn't perhaps go and film in these areas and, and show them in, in these sort of big BBC programmes because it could encourage that kind of over-interest in the area? It's a big issue and aspect and we do think about it and, and mull it, we really do. There's not going to be mass tourism in the Congo. 
but does it encourage generally that idea that the world is always ripe for people to get on a plane and get out there and, and visit? Yes, there's definitely a risk of that. I am totally aware and conscious of the damage that travel and tourism absolutely can do. And I'm very aware and I've heard and we've incorporated into all my programs from the beginning, the catastrophe that we are inflicting on the natural world with climate change and biodiversity loss. I genuinely believe that in the sort of places I'm filming in this series, that potentially, if it can be done as, re as responsibly and as sustainably as possible, that actually travel and tourism has got a bit of a role to play in protecting these places. Because people think, oh, well, if we don't talk about them, people won't go there. No, no, no. The, there are mining companies, logging firms. There are ranchers who are constantly eyeing up these places with a view to deforesting, stripping, digging, drilling into them. So it's not that they're going to be left pristine at all. No way. And there are people living in these places who need to put food on their table. I think, and I know, to be honest, that if it's run properly, travel can offer an economic incentive to people who live in these areas to protect what most of us desperately want to preserve. I totally acknowledge there is still huge issues with travel, but I'm worried now about us losing the elements of our ecosystem that we need for the planet to survive. So, oh my goodness, we need definitely responsible, sustainable travel and tourism. We definitely don't want vast concreted resorts across the center of these wild areas, but that is, that is not genuinely not going to happen. But I do hope that in some areas at the edges, responsible tourism can give people who live there a reason not to poach wildlife and a reason to protect it. And I've heard that time and time again on my journeys. People who are guides used to be a poacher or they used to dynamite fish on coral reef and now they're given a reason to look after those places. So I know it can be a good thing, but I totally respect as well and recognise that industrially it can be a disaster. So there's a moment in the uh, first episode of, of the series where you're in the you're in the Congo rainforest mm. and you drive alongside some potentially illegal logging you don't know at the time. Mm. Um, that's a very very dangerous situation to be in. How do you navigate that? How how present was the sense of danger in that moment? No, there in that moment I totally under, agree with what you're saying. That the people asking questions and taking cameras into those sort of situations can be risky. But there wasn't a there wasn't a sense of malice or danger there. I have been in similar situations where there has been, and where we've had armed guards with us. Uh, we've been, I've been on raids in the Amazon to find illegal gold mines where there is that sense anything could happen at any moment. The person facing the most danger was Adams, my guide there, who lives and breathes that every day. I mean, I think if you watch this program the great privilege you're getting in a way is Adams's time because he is giving up his time from what he does to try and tell you about the Congo and why, because it matters. He runs an organization which works undercover to tackle and take down gangs of poachers, illegal wildlife traffickers, illegal loggers as well. That is his bread and butter. He does that all the time. So in that situation, I'm looking to him as the expert for whether we should be concerned. And he just wanted us to get the numbers that were written on the trunks to find out whether it was uh, legal logging. But as he said, that doesn't still make it moral. Well, 
Simon, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Amazing. Thank you for your interest. I'm delighted and privileged that we had our chat. <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Culture Lab from New Scientist Podcast. That was Bethan Ackerley in conversation with Simon Reeve. His new series, Wilderness, premiered on the BBC last month. If you liked this interview, make sure you subscribe to our feed for more like it. Plus, our weekly news podcast and other special treats drop every Friday and Tuesday. Find more of the great journalism from New Scientist on our website at newscientist.com. I'm Christy Taylor. Bye for now. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.